Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We'll do this week and next week. This week we're going to deal with the subject of the sufficiency of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, and then a baseline for how to interpret Scripture because that goes hand in hand. When we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, we're talking about what it means in reference to its doctrine of salvation. And then when we are also talking about the sufficiency of Scripture, that bleeds into what we think Scripture is really talking about. And for some of us, we may really be keen on one doctrinal point and others of us may be keen on another doctrinal point. And how do we determine uh, through interpretation uh, what the text means and how do we make sure that we're clear about that? So we're going to do that tonight. Then next week we're going to come back and still in the doctrine of revelation, we're going to deal with the authority of Scripture and how that has been challenged over the last 2,000 years of biblical history. So we'll do a short history lesson in that and bring us up to kind of where we are now, contemporary challenges to the authority of Scripture and why that really matters that when we stand before you as a pastor or Pastor Tad or others, myself, and preach the gospel and say, this is what the Bible says, why it really matters that we believe that and why it matters that that's authoritative. So that's what we'll do next week. The week after that is spring break week. Our family will be traveling to see my in-laws in Louisiana. We will not have a WANA that night because when we're not meet, when the schools don't meet, we don't have a WANA. We will still have this. And I want you to be here because one of our pastors, Josh Pinkerton, will be sharing with us. He's our new middle school minister. He's actually got some of the students tonight working with him. But he's going to be sharing on that Wednesday night spring break week. I don't have the date in front of me. It's the 6th, 13th, 20th will be the night that he'll be here. So even if, if, uh, if you can be, be here, support him. Uh, encourage him, smile at him. He'll think uh, you like what he's talking about. Be an encouragement to what he's, what he's doing. And then uh, that does help, doesn't it, Vince? Even if you don't think, even if you're there and you're completely glazed over, if you smile, I won't know that you're glazed over. So it, it, it helps us as communicators when you do, do kind things like that. We're looking forward to Josh uh, speaking that night. Then we'll come back and do something a little unique on the last Sunday of, uh, last Sunday rather, last Last Wednesday night of the month, it's our church conference, and we'll talk about uh, some some items with polity and leadership, pick up on some of the conversations that we've had uh, recently in our Sunday morning sermon series. And then in May, our Wednesday nights will transition to the doctrine of God proper. So we'll talk about who God is and what the scripture tells us about God's attributes and his glories and his greatness. I'll try to have a formal schedule printed one of those nights that kind of lets you know where we're going. The summer will look a little different. We will meet some in the summer, some in the summer, but we'll have different dates where I won't be here. And so we'll have gaps and I'm not sure yet what all we're going to do with kids in the summer, so I don't know how that's all going to work out. We're still working some answers and some figuring stuff out, but we will meet some in the summertime. So what we're dealing with now is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, and interpretation of Scripture. What do I mean by sufficiency? In short, sufficiency, according to B.B. Warfield, is that the Bible is complete for the purpose for which it is given. Meaning that we don't need any other 
element. We don't need any other revelation. We don't need anything outside the scripture in order for us to accomplish the task that God gave us through the scripture. In other words, the ability for you to know God, be forgiven and redeemed, the scripture is absolutely sufficient for that purpose. It's sufficient for redemption. It's sufficient for your knowledge of God. You don't need an extra experience. You don't need another revelation. You don't need someone outside of scripture. You don't need church authority, church tradition. Scripture is the sufficient uh, means for us to be able to know God, grow with God, and walk with God. The reason it's important for us to grasp that is because over the years, throughout church history and experience, there have been quite a few challenges to the sufficiency of Scripture. In other words, ideas that, okay, this book is not enough, and so we need something more. Let me give you a few of those challenges three primary challenges to the sufficiency of Scripture. You'll see in your notes, the first one is mysticism. Uh, And if you wanted to break that down a little bit, you could write down uh, charismatic theology or new revelations. So over the course of uh, scriptural history, or, or church history rather, there have been people who have had these glorious visions of things that have taken place. There have been people who have claimed to meet God in some kind of revelatory sense, mystical uh, type of experiences. In some versions of Pentecostalism or charismatic theology, there are those who would say they're modern day apostles who when they speak, they speak new revelations from God. And some of those put those revelations, those statements on par with the authority of Scripture. Uh, And the problem with mysticism as a challenge to the sufficiency of Scripture is essentially what it does is it raises experience. And and folks, there have been people throughout church history who have had glorious experiences, unique experiences. But the Bible never tells us to seek an experience. Never does. It tells us to meet Jesus and meet Jesus through Scripture. Scripture. You don't need something extra to make sure you're right with God. You need Jesus to make sure you're right with God. And Jesus as described to us in the pages of the Bible. You don't have to have a secondary experience. And if you're waiting on a new revelation to come to you from this pulpit, you're going to be waiting a long time. Because I don't have anything to say that's authoritative and true and universally uh, important that doesn't come from the pages of the Bible. Uh, Folks, I'm just not that smart. I'm not that bright. I'm not that intelligent. And I can't change people. Only God can, but God can through the pages of his word. And it fascinates me how the simple, clear articulation of scripture is what brings someone from a state of lostness to salvation or a state of spiritual immaturity to maturity. It just amazes me. It's because there's power in the pages of Scripture. We don't need something extra. A second challenge to uh, the sufficiency of Scripture would be traditionalism. Uh, And you can write in that blank there, Roman Catholicism. So I'm going to take apart Roman Catholicism a little bit next week when we talk about the authority of Scripture. In short, Roman Catholicism essentially adds papal statements or church tradition and puts it on par with Scripture. And so in Roman Catholic theology, Scripture is not enough. You need to have something more. You need to have 
church tradition or you need to have papal statements or you need to have councils that meet together and give this particular affirmation. A third challenge to the sufficiency of Scripture is woke theology. That's uh, just the way I worded it now. It's really not a new challenge. It's new in this sense. You can think of CRT, critical race theory, or intersectionality. Uh, as issues that challenge the sufficiency of Scripture. Just a few years back in our own denomination, uh, at our Southern Baptist Convention meetings, we have, uh, we have resolutions that are made. And a resolution, is all it is is a statement. It's a statement of affirmation about what Southern Baptists believe or don't believe or what we value or don't value. They're non-binding as resolutions. They're statements. There's a statement on the issue of racial tension and it raised issues, the, 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 the tone or the, the content of critical race theory and intersectionality. And it really started a debate in Southern Baptist life for about three years and still ongoing really about whether or not as Southern Baptists we acknowledge that critical race theory exists or intersectionality exists or, or how all that works. And I don't want to dive in all the weeds of that. There's a place for that. Not so much tonight. Here's the short end of what critical race theory says. It says that the primary problem with the world in which we live is that there are oppressors and oppressed. And essentially you live in one category or the other. You're either a part of the oppressor group because of your race or ethnicity or you're a part of the oppressed group because of your race or ethnicity. It's a part of a critical theory that's Marx, that, that flows out of Marxism. Well, here's the reason that's a challenge to the sufficiency of Scripture. Folks, I believe racism is evil. I believe systemic racism is evil. It's utterly ungodly. I think the Bible speaks against that. I think it's problematic. I'll be honest with you. I don't think I'm telling you anything that would surprise you. Racism and systemic racism still exist in forms and in places in our own country. But here's the problem with CRT and intersectionality as a challenge to the sufficiency of Scripture. What those, um, those ideologies argue for is that really our problem is that we need to fix our oppressor-oppressed situation and that's what will stem the problems in our society. Folks, the Bible's already told us what our problem is. Our problem is not primarily our ethnicity or our victimhood or being oppressed or being the oppressor. Our problem is that we have a broken relationship with God because we're sinful human beings. And racism fits inside of being a sinful human being. The solution to the racism in our country is not what you're going to hear in a, in a higher education The solution to racism in our country is people realizing they're sinners and they need a relationship with Jesus. Because when you realize that a Jewish Messiah died on a Roman cross for people of all ethnicities, tribes, languages, and tongues, folks, it just doesn't matter anymore whether you're black or white or whether you're Asian or whether you're from another part of the world. Salvation is possible to you because the gospel is a universal gospel. And that should change our hearts So that we really do realize that it doesn't matter what nationality or ethnicity or background you are. That doesn't mean we don't seek to understand. And some of us don't have the same experiences others have of other ethnicities. Yeah, we try to understand them. But that's simply called love. Can I get an amen? But scripture is sufficient to address what the real problem is. And the real problem is sinfulness. 
So, B.B. Warfield put it this way, and this is the quote that's in your handout. The Bible is more than a rule of faith and practice. It is more than the rule of faith and practice. It is more than a sufficient rule of faith and practice. It is the only rule of faith and practice. In other words, if you want to know where we as a church stand on anything, you're going to find it in the pages of Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean you can't, we can't have more creeds, or creeds that clarify some issues. It doesn't mean you can't have things like the, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy that I referenced last week. Those things are helpful. It doesn't mean you can't have catechisms. They're very helpful. But in short, we're not looking to those other statements, Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which we subscribe to as Southern Baptist here in our, in our church. It doesn't mean you can't have those. It just means that the primary and major uh, authority for our lives, our guidebook for faith and practice is this. It's the Bible. Not only do we believe the Bible is sufficient, we believe that it is clear. Scripture is clear. That's the next uh, statement there. Scripture is clear with relation to the message of salvation. The word there, the term is perspicuity. That's a fancy word. If you want to look it up later, you can, but it simply means it's clear. It's the theological term for the clarity of Scripture. Um, now, let me read this quote to you from, um, let's see, Robert Latham in his book, his Systematic Theology. He says this, not all of the Scriptures is of equal weight or significance. Some things, those necessary things to be known, believed, and observed for salvation, have strategic significance to shed light on the rest. They're paradigmatic for the whole. The reason that's important for the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture is this. It is true that you're going to find places in Scripture that you're going to say, that's not clear. Or that's not as clear as I would like it to be. That's why we're going to talk about interpretation next. But when it comes to the primary message of Scripture, the primary message of Scripture is utterly clear. I've read the Bible through and through a number of occasions. And yes, I I get as my calling and my ministry and responsibility, I get to study Scripture over and over again. But to be honest with you, the places in the Bible that are hard to understand pale in comparison to the number of places in Scripture where Scripture is absolutely clear about what God's expectations are and who God is. God did not give us a Bible that veils himself. He didn't. He gave us a Bible that reveals himself. And the majority of Scripture is clear. So what I would encourage you to do, if you come across a place in Scripture that's hard to understand, don't ignore it. But don't let it determine, uh, you know, your frustration with the rest of it that is utterly clear, right? Can I get an amen there? So we're going to talk about what, what really that means in light of interpreting Scripture. So this is where our text comes in. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, no, I believe it's 2 Peter 1. I think I put that wrong in your... I put that wrong in your... Did I put it right in the handout, the note? I don't think it's even in there. It's 2 Peter 1. I'm sorry. 2 Peter 1, 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we... Re- eyewitnesses of his majesty. Catch that. For when we received... When he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. 
We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven and were with him on the holy mountain. So you catch the context. What Peter's saying is, I was with Jesus on the transfiguration mountain. He's referring back to that moment when he watched Jesus be glorified. He saw Moses and Elijah come down. And of course, in this letter, he didn't continue to share what he said there, which what he said there was, was not really appropriate. He wanted to make three tabernacles of worship for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And that's when God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Follow him. In other words, correcting Peter, like there's only one worthy of worship. He didn't include that. But this is an experience, and an experience like no other. I want you to get that. Peter had an experience that none of us have had, right? I've not been to a Mount of Transfiguration. I've not seen Jesus glorified in that situation. So he's talking about an experience, but notice what he says after that. Verse 19, and we have something more sure. More sure, more sure than what? More sure than the experience that he's relating. We have something more sure. Notice what he says. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What's more sure? The prophetic word. He's talking about scripture. Something more certain than experience. Because experiences can be had by people of all religious uh, uh, denominations or religions. Muslims can have experiences. Hindus can have experiences. New Age folks can have experiences. Atheists can have experiences. Experiences can be had by people all over the world. We have a real experience with Jesus Christ. It's valid, but it's validated not by the authority of your experience, but by how closely it aligns to the pages of what is sure. Scripture. The reason I can be absolutely sure of my salvation that took place when I was 18 isn't primarily because I can recall what happened then, but primarily because it aligns with what God says about my soul and my need for salvation and my trust in Him. In other words, this is what's certain. He goes on to say in verse 20, uh, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is another statement, clear statement, that affirms the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, speaking His his word through the writers of Scripture. What's important for us is that no prophecy comes from someone's own interpretation. Meaning that when we open the Bible and when we read it, we are doing what's called interpretation. The, the fancy word for that is hermeneutics. That's the other blank in your handout. There's a whole, I've taken several hermeneutics classes. I've taught around hermeneutics at Bible college. Fantastic study. We're going to do a short lesson in hermeneutics tonight. What do I mean by hermeneutics? This is the study of the interpretation of Scripture. How do we interpret the Bible? How do we make sense of what's written? Especially when you come across something that is a little bit challenging or a little bit hard. Let me give you three hermeneutical strategies that have been used throughout church history. The first one is typological interpretation. It's quite simply where everything in the Old Testament is a type of something that's going to happen in the New Testament, or much of the Old Testament is a type. For example, Jesus is a type of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, or the sacrificial system rather is a type of Christ. Jesus is a sacrifice. He's a type of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. There is truth in typological interpretation, but it can go to an extreme. 
Uh, because if you read the book of Hebrews, the, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, they are all appropriate types of Christ, acknowledged in the New Testament as a type of Christ from the Old Testament. Where typological interpretation as a primary strategy gets problematic is when we try to see a type in everything in the Old Testament. Such as uh, Jesus is a type, uh, or uh, you know, every Old Testament character is a type of Christ. That's typological interpretation. Let me give you a second one. Allegorical interpretation. Think uh, John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, where each uh, event or item or circumstance, the giant of despair, references desperation and depression in Christian's life. I mean, you think about that's allegorical. There are places in Scripture that are intentionally allegorical. There are a few places, some of Jesus' parables. He specifically says that this item in the parable references this particular characteristic in its interpretation. That's an allegory. Allegorical interpretation of Scripture gets funny, though. Augustine was famous for some of this. This were some other church fathers. So they were right on some things, and they got some other things off, just like we're all going to do when we get to heaven. We're going to get corrected on some of our theology. I just want you to know that. Just be ready for that. I'm going to find out I'm wrong on some stuff. I just hope there are some things I'm not wrong about. I mean, you know what I'm saying. I mean, I've argued for some things pretty heavily. I want to make sure I'm right on the main things. Nevertheless, allegorical interpretation would be like the, uh, the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan story, one of the things that Augustine did is he likened the Holy Spirit to the oil that the, whole, that the Samaritan put on the, the man to try to heal him. It's like, what? I mean, it's just reading into things, reading into Scripture. So that, that's a, a type of interpretation. The final uh, category of interpretation or type would be, strategy rather, would be literal interpretation. It means the, the text it means what it says, and we read it as literally as we can. We do that with qualification. I'm going to explain that qualification in just a moment. But literal interpretation is generally what we do when we open the pages of Scripture. Unless it's intentionally an allegory, or unless it's intentionally in another category of literary genre, we're going to read it as for what it says. It means what it says. It's not, I mean, there are places where, for example, Jesus walking on the water is not parabolic. The text says he walked on water. Now, I'll get to the authority of that next week, miracles, but I believe that means that Jesus walked on water. I don't believe it's a parable for Jesus' victory over your issues and my issues. He walked on water. That's reading it plainly, and that's what interpretation is. So how do we read the text plainly? Let me give you a a couple of um, five hermeneutical principles, but before I do that, let me share with you a a statement by R.C. Sproul, a fascinating statement. This would be us. For the classic Protestant, though the individual believer, that's you and me, Though the individual believer has the right to the private interpretation of Scripture, he is capable of misinterpreting the Scripture. Is that fair enough? You've probably heard some pastors misinterpret Scripture. I've misinterpreted Scripture. You've probably read a passage of Scripture, said this is what it means, only to discover later to your horror that, and shame that you were wrong about that interpretation of Scripture. We have the right to do that because God gave this book to all of us. He didn't just give it to experts. He didn't give, just give it to pastors. He gave it to all of us. But here's this. Here's his qualification. But while he, that is the believer, has the ability to misinterpret Scripture, he does not have the right to do it. That is, with the right of private interpretation comes the responsibility of making an accurate interpretation. So God has given you the Bible, 
But he's not giving us the Bible willy-nilly so you and I can take it and make out of it what we want it to say or what we'd like it to mean. He's given us the Bible so that we can interpret it as accurately as possible so that when we say, this is what God says, we are actually accurate in saying, this is what God says and this is what God means. So what we're going to do is give you five principles that will help us make sure that when you're reading your Bible in the morning in your devotional time and you come across it and you think about how does this apply, how does this work out, what does this mean, you can accurately interpret what that means. Let me give you five principles. The first one, I mentioned this a few weeks back in a sermon, it's interpret scripture with scripture. Interpret scripture with scripture. Let the clear passage of the Bible inform and interpret and illuminate the hard passages of scripture. Let me give you one example. We won't read them, but if you go to Hebrews chapter six, verses four through six, there's a text there that seems to indicate something like losing your salvation. I don't think that's what it means, but it's a very, it's a hard passage of scripture. It's there and there are some denominations and some preachers that would teach from that text, you can lose your salvation. But that's a hard text. It's not even clear. It's not really even clear to me exactly what the writer of the book of Hebrews was getting at there. But I don't think it was losing your salvation. Nevertheless, we let something that's clear speak to something that's not. So if you let John chapter 10 verses 27 through 30 interpret your understanding of salvation, Jesus says that we're in the Father and he's in, that he's in the Father and we're in Jesus and he knows his sheep and he will not let anyone take his sheep and no one can snatch his sheep out of the Father's hand. It's very clear to me that Jesus is saying without qualification that if you are in Jesus and Jesus is in God and you're saved and forgiven and redeemed, no one is taking you from Jesus. You can't lose your salvation. So we let the clear places in scripture inform and illuminate the places that aren't quite as clear. We did that a little bit with that section of scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let me give you another interpretive um, principle. Number two, interpret scripture in light of the literary genre. So the genre of scripture informs how we interpret it and informs how we apply it. Let me give an example. And I shared this way back when we went through the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 22, 6. Raise up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. If you read that as a didactic promise, like from the lips of Jesus, where he says, Matthew 6, 33... It tells us that if we seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these things will be added into you. He knows what we need. That's a promise. That is an absolute. That is a guarantee. If we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Jesus knows what, he's need, what we need. He's going to take care of us. That doesn't mean that some Christians don't die of hunger. That doesn't mean some Christians don't die of persecution. It just means that Jesus it has us. And it's an absolute promise that he does, right? The book of Proverbs is not a book of absolute promises. The book of Proverbs is a book of general principles that that if you apply them in an overarching way in your life, you can expect them to generally come true. So if you read Proverbs 22.6 as an absolute promise, then that promise hasn't worked itself out in many of the experiences that you and I know of. Because you know of some kids that were raised exactly as they should be raised and yet they fell away. So... That, that interpretive strategy is helpful. It's helpful in narrative sections of Scripture. The narrative places in Scripture describe to us what happened, 
And so we draw application from that, but not always are we to seek to emulate the experiences of the narrative sections of Scripture. For example, when Jesus invited Peter to walk on water, right? I believe Peter walked on water. What a cool experience, right? But that doesn't mean that when you get out on your boat this summer and you hear the voice in your ear, Jesus saying, come to me on the water, and you step out and say, I'm just going to follow, I'm going to do what Peter did, man. I'm going to walk on water. Okay, have at it. You're going to sink. Okay? Now you're going to sink. In other words, that's a narrative, a descriptive passage. Here's what happened. It's not so much, here's what you do. What do you do? You put your faith in Jesus, knowing that if he asks you to take a step of faith in an experience in your life, then he will be there with you in that moment. Really, it teaches you that salvation only means that you have to ask for Jesus to save you. I mean, because that's the shortest salvation prayer in human history, and Jesus saved Peter in that moment. Nevertheless, that, the genre helps us understand what's going on. Let me give you another example of genre. Apocalyptic literature. So the book of Revelation, for example. We're talking about literal readings of Scripture. We're not going to get into a ton of eschatology tonight. But read through Revelation. There's some imagery there that, that is frightening, that is uncertain, uncertain, that is weird. Some of it is plainly allegorical, like the beast and the woman who gave birth and the 12 tribes. I mean, that's Satan who's trying to take Jesus away from Mary who was born, who's a depiction of Israel. I mean, it's plainly allegorical. Even the text kind of leads to that. There are other places in, in the book of Revelation that are just flat out strange. I mean, the little locusts, right, with the tails of the serpents. What are they? I'll be honest with you. I don't know. Are they demons? I don't know. But I remember a doctrine class I had as a teenager. The, the guy teaching the doctrine class basically said that the, the, the little locust things are helicopters. And then he said that the, the, uh, the, the rocks that come from heaven are nuclear bombs. That's the way he interpreted that. Well, here's the problem. The book of Revelation is, al- is, uh, is apocalyptic literature, meaning that it's image-based... Not to be interpreted as literal in the sense that all of those things are exactly what are going to take place. And, and we could get into the, if, if I ever pre- have, the, have the, uh, the guts to preach through Revelation through and through, we'll get into the weeds of that. Really what that means is that if you read it and you find it difficult, that's okay. Because interpreters throughout history have still found the book of Revelation difficult. Same thing would be true with uh, the book of Daniel. And we worked through that on Wednesday night several years ago. So interpret scripture in light of the literary genre. Let me give you a third interpretive principle. Right interpretation derives from a recognition of biblical authority. I'm very thankful that most of scripture is clear. (laughs) Amen, Vince? That most of it, when you read it, it's like, man, that's, okay, I get that. Yes, there's nuance. Yes, when you get into the context and you study, oh, man, that really is helpful and enlightening on the text. I'm thankful for that. But I'm thankful that most of Scripture is not hidden and veiled so that I don't have to wrestle every single week with really hard passages of Scripture. So if you think that Scripture is hard to interpret, how do we get it right? Just remember the two guardrails of interpretation. It's this, the Holy Spirit... Holy Spirit, John 16, 
16, 13. The Holy Spirit's job, one of the reasons God gave you the Holy Spirit, which yes, is a mystical experience that happens at salvation. It's a glorious thing, uh, but the Holy Spirit's living inside you and you know what the Holy Spirit's job is? One of his jobs is to help you interpret the Bible. So if you, one thing that's helped me over the years is when I open up the Bible to read it, a lot of times I will open it up in a spirit of prayer and say, Heavenly Father, will you help me understand what you wrote in the Bible? Because I want to apply it, and I want to know it, and I want to understand it. You know what God does? Because he loves you, and he loves me, and he gave us the Holy Spirit for the purpose. He helps us understand Scripture. Remember the Holy Spirit. He will help you interpret Scripture. The second guardrail is the church or historical orthodoxy. So here's what I mean by that. Not in the sense of Roman Catholic church tradition. I do mean though that that if you come up with this uh, and, and in a few weeks, sometime in May, we'll talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. If you come up with this glorious new way to illustrate the Trinity, right? It's probably heretical. Sorry about that to, to burst your bubble. Understanding historical orthodoxy and making sure your interpretation is in line with generally what 2,000 years of church history has said is a really healthy way to interpret scripture. What that means is that when somebody writes a book today, and this happens all the time, a book that's dealing with a contemporary uh, kind of hot button issue, sometimes it has to do with racism or sexuality or gender or those kind of things, and they, they come up with this means of interpreting scripture. Matthew Vine's God and the Gay Christian is, an, is a gloriously bad example of this. He gave a particular way of interpreting the, the homosexual passages of scripture in order to justify homosexuality. It's what he did. It's the way he made that case. The reason that's bad, he's wrong, but it, it, it worked against 2,000 years of interpretive strategies in history. Like, no interpreter for 2,000 years other than him has interpreted that text that way. So, if you come across a text that you're like, I don't really know what that means, one of the reasons commentaries are helpful is because they provide that historically orthodox framework for saying, okay, if I'm way off and I read commentaries pretty regularly when I preach, to make sure that I'm not way off. That I, that I don't go south when the text is going north. Uh, and that's, that's a healthy guardrail to make sure that our interpretation of a text or passage of scripture is right. Let me give you a fifth statement. I'll just read this and then we'll walk through the takeaways. Accurate interpretation of meaning influences the significance and application of scripture. So how we apply the text is different than what the text means. Y'all get that, right? We can make applications in our contemporary experience that Paul never had in mind when he was writing in 1 Timothy. I'm going to do that Sunday with some enemies of the gospel. The, the text doesn't lead us to look at one of the enemies of the gospel that I'm going to reference, but I really believe if Paul had lived today, he would have reflected on that particular enemy of the gospel that leads people astray. But it fits the, the application, even if it doesn't, isn't derived directly from the meaning. Nevertheless, the meaning is important for us to grasp proper application. So we need to understand what it means so we can understand how to put it in practice in our own lives. Let me give you four takeaways. And we'll be done. Takeaway number one. The doctrines of sufficiency and clarity mean that the Bible is our guidebook to salvation and following Christ. Uh, Short end short is if you don't get anything else out of this study, this lecture tonight, get this. The Bible. The Bible. It's our guidebook to salvation 
and our guidebook to following Christ. You want to know how to know Jesus? You want to know how to follow Jesus? Read the Bible. When somebody comes and sits down in my office and they want to know about Jesus and they have questions, I'll answer their questions. I'll talk them through the gospel. And if they're not ready at that moment to receive Jesus, do you know what I always tell them to do? Go home and read the gospel of John. Or go home and read the gospel of Matthew. Or if they're really intense and they're challenged by contemporary issues and want to understand the gospel, I'll tell them to read the book of Romans. Why? Because the Bible is our guidebook to salvation and following Jesus. Folks, some of you are sitting in the room today, and I'm going to tell you, we need to be witnesses of the gospel. You and I need to tell other people about Jesus. You and I need to invite other people to know Jesus. And yeah, you can invite them to church. We want you to do that. We want them here to hear the gospel. Absolutely. We want them to hear the worship of the church and and glorify God. But do you know every single one of you can be a witness of the gospel, you say, how? I don't know what to say. Just say what this says. This is what leads people to a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation, Romans 1.17. And when we let this speak, it draws people to Christ. This really is our primary method for sharing the gospel and for following Jesus. You want to know how to live as a Jesus follower? Yeah, plug into a church, worship, learn, serve, replicate in the life of our church as we're following Jesus. But how do we supplement that? Or really, how, how, do we under, how do we know that that's what we're supposed to do? Because of this. This is our guidebook. You cannot be a strong, faithful, healthy, following Christian without this. It's not possible. You can be okay and salvation doesn't depend on how much you read scripture, thank heavens, right? It depends on Jesus and you trusting in Jesus alone to be your savior. But you cannot be a strong, growing, healthy Christian without this because this is what guides the way that we behave. That's why this is doctrine and devotion. Theological reflections, which is what we're doing. We're diving into some deep theology or some, or some, some clear theology. Why? For spiritual formation. We need this to guide how we behave not just show what we believe. Let me give you a second takeaway. Remember first to look for the clear and obvious when reading the scripture. So you wake up in the morning, you're reading, you're reading your devotions. And I do this every morning, I read my devotions. What do I look for? I look for what's clear. That's the first thing I look for when I read the Bible. In my discipleship group that met today, the verse that I reference is our memory verse for this week, where Paul said, or this month, Paul says, pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. That is, that is bare bones, plain and simple, clear teaching for those that are pastors and teachers and communicators. I'm to make sure that I'm faithful in the way I behave, and I'm to make sure I'm faithful in what I teach. It doesn't get more simple as a set of instructions for a pastor. It's clear. Folks, there is plenty in the scripture that is so clear that if you will do what's clear, you won't ever have to worry about, really, the things that aren't clear. Can I get an amen? Our biggest problem is that we'd rather argue about what's not clear than apply what is absolutely clear. Third takeaway, enter the reading of Scripture with a spirit of submission to whatever God means to say in the text. When you read the Bible, realize it's God speaking. 
I've had people tell me over the years they think God speaks to them. I think God speaks to you too. And God may and can speak through the Holy Spirit. I've read John Eldridge books and I wouldn't necessarily recommend them because there's some kind of mystical conversation with God that he has going on every day and, and God tells him what to wear and where to go. And, and, and okay, I'm not putting God past that. You can have those kind of conversations with God. But here's what I mean. God speaks through this every single time I read the Bible. He is talking to me. Now, certainly he meant it for Jeremiah or the Jewish people in Jeremiah's day. And certainly he meant, you know, for, for the church at Ephesus. But he means it for us too. You want to know what, you want God to speak to you? People pray, what does God want me to do? How do I figure out what to do in life? And I want God to tell me what to do in life. He's already told you what he wants you to do in life. Do this. Start here. Uh, here here's just kind of practical point. If you're waiting on God to give you an answer to something that it's not clear in scripture, such as like a job, marriage, where to go to college, what career to have, if you're waiting on those answers, when to retire, if you're waiting on those answers without doing what God's already said clearly in scripture, you're gonna be waiting a long time. Do what he said and made clear and trust that he'll guide in those other areas because he will, he promises to. But we gotta be willing, that's where the submission comes in. I'm gonna do what God says to do. If he says, love my neighbor, well, I'm gonna love my neighbor. If he says, forgive that person that's harmed me, I don't like that, but I've gotta forgive that person that harmed me. If he says, be humble, I really don't like that. If he says, confess that sin, there are things I don't like where I'm gonna submit to the text because this is what God says. Fourth takeaway, wrestle with the more difficult passages in light of the interpretive principles above. So let's say you come across a text of scripture that you're like, I mean, I don't know. I just don't know. Go back through those five principles. Take that worksheet home with you. Work through it in light of other scriptures. I'm happy to talk to you about challenging interpretive texts. I, I love these kind of conversations. I'm a theology nerd. I like this. I, this is, if, if all church ministry was this, just me teaching, I would absolutely love it. Now, I love the other stuff too, but I mean, that, this is, I geek out on this stuff. I enjoy it. So if you want to come have a conversation about a hard passage of scripture, listen, call me up. Say you want to take me to coffee or take me to lunch. Come by my office. I will be happy to spend time with you. I really will. I love doing that. But, but, recognize this too. You're a follower of Jesus who has the Holy Spirit in the Bible. You don't have to have your pastor to help you interpret everything. The Holy Spirit's better than me. And if you come across a text that's hard and difficult, wrestle with it in light of these principles above. And if you still can't figure it out, I'll probably point you in the direction of a resource or a commentary. Or, and, and just know this too. Last thing and we'll finish up. Some texts of scripture I'm still wrestling with. There are some places in scripture that you're gonna come across that you'll wrestle with till you meet Jesus. And that's just a good reminder that God, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. It's stated in the book of Isaiah. There are some things that God says about some things Take Romans 9, Hebrews 6, take the book of Revelation, take the last five chapters of the book of Daniel. There are some places 
that quite simply I have wrestled with, thought about, prayed on. I've even tried to teach and preach and I still wrestle with. And I will till the day I die. It just reminds me that I'm not God. And it should remind you that you're not God and that there are some things that are bigger than our brains can handle and greater than our thoughts can think. And that ought to be a good affirmation that this book didn't come from people like you and me. It came from a God speaking through people like you and me. Can I get an amen? amen. So we'll deal with authority next week. I'm going to I'm going to do a pre-apology, okay? Next week's course is kind of a a, a, a a crash course in history, philosophical history. So if you don't like history, I'm going to try not to bore you. If you like history, you'll get a kick out of next week's session. Um, but we're going to talk about the authority of Scripture and the challenges to the authority of Scripture over the last several, uh, several centuries, more than several centuries. Thanks for being here. Let me close this in a time of prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here, learn, study, and grow. I thank you that your word is sufficient, that it's clear, that it's authoritative, that it's truthful, that it's inspired, that it's inerrant. And I thank you that as we open up your word, we know that you speak to us. Father, I pray, I pray specifically for our congregation. Lord, I love these people. I love the people that you have sent our way. I thank you for what you're doing in their lives. And I pray, Lord, that today, I pray that in the morning as they read your word, I pray that they would read it with a renewed sense of humility and recognition that you took the time to write that book so that we would read it in that moment. Lord, that's humbling. I pray, Lord, that not only would we read it with that realization, but Heavenly Father, that we would apply it with that realization. And uh, Lord, that you'd make us more like you. We pray this for your glory and for your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.